This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, my name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. Today, we explore recent developments in several successor states of the former Soviet Union, where there's been considerable unrest and violence of late. We're fortunate to have with us today Dr. Andrew Cutchins, president of the American University of Central Asia in Bishkek, uh, Kyrgyzstan. Dr. Cutchins has held faculty, research, and administrative positions at the University of California at Berkeley, Stanford, and the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Most recently, from 2015 to 2019, he was a research professor at Georgetown's uh, Walsh School of Foreign Service, where he taught and ran the Russia Futures Program. Before that, he directed the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington uh, during 2007 to 2015, and directed the Russia and Eurasia Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, including running the Carnegie Moscow Center for three years. He's written widely about Russian and Eurasian affairs. He speaks to us today from Bishkek. Thank you so much for joining us today, Andrew Cutchins. Uh, thanks, John. It's, uh, I'm delighted to, uh, to be with you. Great to have you. So let's launch right in. Um, this is a region that's been undergoing some serious turmoil lately. The president of the only democracy in post-Soviet Central Asia has just stepped down after large protests against what is alleged to have been a rigged election and the leader of the country sometimes called the last dictatorship in Europe, namely Belarus, or Belarus, is also facing serious opposition to his rule. Meanwhile, the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh find themselves squaring off against their Azerbaijani neighbors in a way that recalls the war of 25 years ago and that threatens a wider war potentially involving Russia, Turkey, Iran, and others. So what's going on and why is this all happening now? <laughs> That's a great question, John. Um, well, if you're looking at Kyrgyzstan and uh, Belarus, uh, you know, these um, were both started as uh, uh, rebellions against results of, in the, the Kyrgyz case, parliamentary elections, which took place uh, two weeks ago on October 4th. And uh, in Belarus, a presidential election, which reelected for a sixth term, by a supposed 80% uh, 
the votes going to him, Alexander Lukashenko. Uh, the uh, in Belarus, um, people came out in the streets uh, uh, beginning that night, um, and they have continued to do so, uh, but especially on Sundays. Um, 100 to 250,000 people will come out on the streets on Minsk and at Minsk every Sunday, protesting against uh, uh, Lukashenko's uh, presidency um, for the last for the last two months. You know, I think I think it, when I look at all three things and, and why might these be happening at the same time? Well, first, definitely in Kyrgyzstan, the case I know best. Uh, if there had not been COVID and an extremely uh, poor response uh, to COVID on the government's part in the summer, I seriously doubt we would have seen what has happened in the last in the last two weeks. The um, uh, things were. Uh, I was actually out of the country for five five months and eight days. Um, I left on March thirteenth. I was going to go to, on the fifteenth. Uh, to visit my sister in Australia, stopping in Moscow. She was pretty sick, and um, Australia closed down. And then four days later, the day before, I had uh, booked a new flight to go back to Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan closed down. So I spent three and a half months in Moscow uh, with my wife at her mother's apartment, and then about two months, almost two months in the United States. That's kind of my, my COVID story. Um, as far as I know, I was not, in, I was not infected. But obviously, I was staying in very close touch uh, with what's going on at Bishkek, um, managing a universe. Of, of, we, we went online, of course, in March, like most universities in the world did. And uh, uh, I was doing, I was doing, playing my role as president uh, three hours away from Moscow, which was reasonably manageable. Ten hours away in the United States was, was, was tougher. But the, uh, in the month of July... Um, and into early August, the COVID was running rampant in, in Kyrgyzstan. I really don't think the official numbers uh, begin to tell the story. Um, at one point, just in our staff and faculty at AUCA, uh, about 20% were sick. Um, uh, there, I'm sure there are far more that were infected that were asymptomatic, but that's kind of the, the story everywhere. But the the health, you know, this is a this is a poor country. Uh, the uh, per capita GDP is less than two thousand dollars a year. Um, when I talk to people about you know where to go, where to go if you uh, if you get sick, the response was don't get sick. It's not a great healthcare system, and it was completely overwhelmed uh, in uh, in July, and it really exposed uh, the president Jane Beckoff and government institutions as uh, just not up to the task um, in some ways, in some ways, not too dissimilar from what has happened in the United States. I would say any politician running for office in 2020, uh, if you're, if you're the stat, if you're the guy in power or the woman in power, um, you're in trouble, I think. But uh, that, that was the background, I think, that made this, the parliamentary elections a lot more uh, heated and volatile. And this, the second thing that, you know, when the, the elections, uh, the, so the campaign ran for about a, about a month, uh, and then election day on October 4th. So there were, there were 16 parties that were running 
and uh, only four parties were able to make it uh, get more than 7% of the vote, which was the requirement to have representation in the uh, the parliament here in, uh, in Kyrgyzstan. Now, uh, those four parties that made it in, um, you know, together they, they got about uh, 65% of the vote. Uh, three of the parties were very much kind of pro-power, uh, I would say, kind of pro the, uh, the existing ruling system. And together they got about 58%. Um, but there were a lot of other votes out there that could have been had by opposition, by opposition parties. Uh, but I think it was a real problem that the opposition was so disunited. Um, and as a result, and there were major efforts made in particular against three parties uh, to not get in um, through a lot of disinformation, a lot of the kinds of things that we saw uh, on social media in 2016 in the United States during our presidential election. The same uh, game plan was being followed. And in a way, as we would, as an old Sovietologist, we would say they overfulfilled the plan. You know, none of those real opposition parties made it into the parliament. Um, and, and with, so even though those, there were those four parties at 65% of the vote, you know, all the other votes that were out there went to them. And effectively, there was one kind of opposition party and three definitely pro pro uh, power parties and the three pro power parties got 88% of the vote and having 88% of the seats in the, in the parliament was not an acceptable outcome for the people. It was never going to be an acceptable outcome for the people. So uh, there was, you know, and there was, there definitely was vote buying there allegate all kinds of uh, electoral violations, but I'm not sure to what extent they were actually, you know, greater than they'd usually been in Kyrgyzstan or in a lot of other elections in post-Soviet, uh, in the so-called post-Soviet space. But it was the fact that with the, the, uh, the representation system in the parliament that the three uh, parties of uh, power, as they call them, having almost 90% of the votes, that's what got people out on the streets. Um, and uh, it started on, uh, on, on the Monday at 1 p.m. I remember it very well. I was about a block away having lunch with one of my colleagues and uh, talk, meeting someone that we were looking to uh, invite to the board for AUCA. Um, I didn't hear much going on, but that night things got, uh, uh, got quite violent uh, in uh, downtown and the, um, uh, the presidential uh, residence or the, the, the government was, uh, was, was uh, ransacked and the president, Jenin Bekov, basically went into hiding. We didn't hear from him for four more days while this went on. On the next day, uh, four guys who had been imprisoned, um, one a former president, uh, two former prime ministers, and the fourth guy, who is now the Sadir Japarov, uh, he, he, who is now the acting president and also the prime minister, um, they were let out of jail and, uh, uh, should get, get on with this story. So we don't spend all this, all our, all our time on it, but it was, it was remarkable in that. So this guy was let out of jail on Tuesday, uh, October 6th, nine days later, well, just to back up, he'd been in jail for three years. 
uh, and he'd been a fugitive from Kyrgyz law for four years before that. So this guy was not exactly in political circulation for seven years. He gets out of jail. Nine days later, he becomes prime minister and acting president. That doesn't happen <laughs> in, in many, many places. An unlikely outcome. And pretty unlikely outcome. I don't think the odds in Vegas were pretty heavily stacked against against that. There are a couple of, you know, just uh, as an aside, sort of numerological um, interesting things about this. There were, this is the third revolution that's taken place in Kyrgyzstan. There was one in 2005 and one in 2010 and now one in 2020. Uh, The day that this one started... It was the fifth day of the 10th month in 2025, 10, 20. Kind of an interesting coincidence. Also, all four of the, uh, of the Kyrgyz presidents uh, that have been elected to power and who've been thrown out of power and in uh, not too dissimilar circumstances, they've left power at the age of 61. I don't know. You know, I'm 61, John, and I'm hoping I don't get thrown out of power as the president of AUCA. But that's, that's what happened here. Um, it was a very bizarre uh, uh, 12 days. Uh, things were, were resolved on uh, last Thursday when uh, the President Jane Bekov announced that he was stepping down. And uh, uh, Mr. Japarov had already been nominated under rather mm, somewhat murky, uh, murky conditions by the parliament. There was question by the, you know, the not the new parliament that was elected, because those parliamentary those those results were annulled on also on Tuesday, October sixth, um, but by the existing parliament. The question was whether there was a quorum, whether there was more than fifty percent of the parliamentarians present. But uh, there was a, and another moment of truth, and I'll maybe stop at this at this point on the on Kyrgyzstan was on Friday, October ninth. So about two o'clock in three, no, four o'clock in the afternoon on that, on, on the ninth, Jenebekov had not appeared before the public for four days, five days, excuse me. And he appeared and he said that he, he called martial law and a curfew and a curfew would start at 8 PM. Now that was pretty bizarre. The president who had not been visible at all since, uh, for five days, comes on and he says that. Now, my take on that, John, was that, wow, he must have definitely feel full support from Moscow in doing that. Um, otherwise, I don't see that it's it's credible from his, given his very weak position. And he has been a weak president. And so that, so that evening, uh, supporters of the former president, uh, Atanbayev, who'd been let out of jail, supporters of the former prime minister Babanov, who'd been let out of jail earlier in the week, and the supporters of uh, Sadir Japarov, um, who had been let out of jail, they all came out on the main square, Alato Square, and it was a pretty wild situation out there. Um, I had to take a phone, I had to make a couple of phone calls that left, that when I left a little before 7 p.m., uh, things were, it looked like, People were fighting out there. They were shooting guns out there. It looked like a pretty crazy scene. When I came back from the phone calls at just after eight o'clock, the square was completely quiet. Everybody had gone home, but they followed the curfew. Um, 
So kind of looked at that moment like, okay, Jay and Beth, Jay and Beckoff is the, is the president and he's back, but that uh, didn't, didn't exactly turn out, turn out that way. Well, it certainly sounds like an unusual set of circumstances to put it mildly. Um, but I, I wanted to get back to a question that I think I posed, uh, you know, initially, which has to do with the question of what the relationship might be between what's going on in Kyrgyzstan, Belarus, and, and Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, not exactly, I suppose, directly, but, you know, is there some reason that uh, you could point to that explains why all this is happening, you know, at this time. I mean, we talk about the post-Soviet space, but that's obviously a large and diverse uh, set of countries at this point. Uh, and indeed, you know, we're talking about Central Asia, we're talking about, you know, essentially Europe in the case of Bel Belarus. Uh, so I wonder how you see the connections insofar as there are any uh, between these different cases or situations um yeah let me get, get to your first question because it really is interesting you know so Nagorno-Karabakh is a 32 year now uh war most of the time it's been a frozen conflict started back in the Soviet days in 88 and it uh between Azeris and Armenians and uh uh the uh uh a peace peace was uh, achieved in 1994, um, and it had been so it was kind of referred to as a frozen conflict at that time. Uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, I know you had a show on this recently. is uh, It's an Armenian populated part of uh, what was Azerbaijan as part of the uh, uh, the Azeri Republic in the Soviet context, and then in the post-Soviet context as well. So this has been a very, very, very um, deep-seated uh, conflict, and that even the 32 years, it goes back much longer than that because of the Armenians having uh, experienced the genocide in, uh, 20, in 1915 uh, with the Turks. Um, so that's a long-standing, and Lukashenko is also very, a sort of a long-standing situation. I mean, Condi Rice called him when she was Secretary of State uh, <laughs> More than 15 years ago, the last dictator in Europe. Well, he, he's still the last dictator in Europe. Um, he's been ruling for 20, 26 years uh, as the, uh, excuse me, 24 years as the president of, uh, of Belarus. So I think there are two things going on. Uh, part of it is COVID. Uh, COVID has uh, uh, obviously hit uh, each of these countries hard, uh, uh, both medically and economically. Um, and so... Uh, certainly with uh, with Belarus, you have, I mean, these look like kind of a standard kind of, uh, you know, color revolutions, people uh, that are fed up with the uh, the ruling authorities for corruption, for inept governance, et cetera, et cetera, which we've seen before. But I think we have this kind of common denominator, uh, sort of foundation, structural, you know, disruptive event. I mean, COVID is, I think, the most disruptive event uh, certainly of our lives and maybe uh, maybe World War II. World War II was more disruptive at this point, but we're not we're not through COVID yet. So there's a big economic hit on people as well. And so uh, if you're the you're a guy in power, it's not a good time to be in be in power. And uh, I think that's going to be the main reason why Donald Trump uh, would lose uh, in a few weeks in the United States. But we'll see. So 
that's part of it. Um, it's a little harder to make the direct link with, uh, with Nagorno-Karabakh. I mean, the other, aside from COVID, I think the other, other factor that has changed is that Turkey has been much more aggressive and out front in uh, siding with uh, its regional ally, Azerbaijan. And the Russians are the traditional allies of Armenia. Um, and they haven't been quite as out front as, uh, as Turkey, but, uh, there's always the fear that if this conflict, um, you know, blows up, then it could end up in a regional, uh, a regional war, uh, involving Turkey, Russia, possibly Iran, Iran also borders Armenia. So, but the other common factor I think is that, you know, this is, you know, this is the former Russian empire and, um, former Soviet empire, former Russian empire and Moscow and the center is in Moscow, and Moscow is in a relatively weak position right now. Uh, you know, they have been hit very hard by COVID themselves. They're number four in infections, and their rate has been increasing dramatically uh, in the past uh, month or so, like it has, like it has in Europe, like it is right now in Kyrgyzstan and a lot of other places around the world, whether you call it a second wave or not. And of course, there's they get a double whammy on the economic hit because uh, they're so dependent upon the price of oil and export of uh, hydro hydrocarbons. So economically, Russia's in a weaker weaker position to control things. And uh, so I think the, the combination of those two factors working together, uh, to me, is sort of the uh, would be the kind of the common explanation for why these three things are happening simultaneously. So, um, I mean, the, Europe, the European Union has tried to uh, impose sanctions on Belarus to try to get it to behave a little bit better. Um, I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what kinds of potentials there are for bringing these conflicts and these, this unrest in these different countries under uh, control. I mean, from outside, are there outside actors, the UN that can, can be involved, the, the EU? I mean, h- how are these things going to be resolved? Well, I think in the case of, in the case of Belarus, uh, it's not going to be the, the EU or the, or the UN or, or another outside player. It'll be to what extent is Vladimir Putin going to be ready to, uh, uh, support Lukashenko, and then how far is Lukashenko going to willing to go in um, uh, basically you know, shooting and killing his own citizens? Uh, there has been a lot of nasty violence at each of the demonstrations that take place uh, over the last two months on on Sundays. I'm not sure what is what has happened today, but that's basically it. And Putin is not in a he's never liked Lukashenko. <laughs> but, but as uh, FDR once famously said, yeah, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. And that's the position Putin's in with Lukashenko, the same position he was in with Yanukovych um, in Ukraine uh, six, seven years ago. Now, of course, the European Union with Ukraine was a much more significant player there because the, uh, the kind of the preamble uh, to the uh, eventually the Russian seizure of uh, Crimea and then instigating the uh, the war in the Donbass in 2014, it was uh, the decision of Ukraine as to whether it was going to be have a partnership relationship with the with the European Union. And so as the Russians saw that they kind of saw that in zero sum terms, and to some extent the Europeans did too. And 
uh, Ukraine, just given the nature of the geography and its economy, it can't make a, a black and white choice, really. Anyway, we saw what happened. But in this case in Belarus, uh, the EU I don't see as a significant player. Uh, if um, uh, there is an actual revolution and the uh, Lukashenko regime is toppled, uh, then there'll be a big role for the uh, for Europe to play in helping Belarus um, uh you know, reform its economy, its polity, uh, et, et cetera. But um, if the EU plays, tries to play too much of a role right now, then that's really going to rankle, that'll further rankle Putin, uh, frankly. So, you know, putting, you know, sanctions on, on Lukashenko uh, is not, I don't think it's his biggest worry right now, but he's got a very hard choice to make and Vladimir Putin has a harder choice to make and uh, and right now, you know, Russia's uh, Russia's relations with Europe are really in a poor state. Um, you know, the most recent event, of course, was the the poisoning of opposition leader Alexei Navalny uh, using Novichok, uh, the the same kind of poison that was used on the Skripals in London um, a few years ago. I can't imagine what, who thought who in Russia thought it was a good idea to poison Alexander Navalny right now. Um, I, that's kind of a head scratcher to me, but um, Navalny, you know, he went to, uh, uh, he was, a, first of all, he's, he lived and he's recovered, maybe not fully recovered yet, but he's been in Germany. And so Europe has really been upset about this case as they, as they should, as they should be. I mean, the poisoning of, of Navalny is, um, uh, I mean, if there, there he is, Russia does have an opposition figure who could mobilize uh, support amongst the people. And of course, that's why Putin hates him. Um, but the timing of this is questionable. Now, the thing in, in, in Belarus, there's not such an obvious leader of the, of the opposition uh, as there is there. But um, so I think, you know, Belarus, it's going to come down to, and it's, I think it's going to, the, the rubber's going to hit the road uh, on the 25th, next Sunday, um, John, because the, uh, you know, the, the opposition politician, um, Svetlana uh, Tikhanovskaya, who has been outside of Belarus, I think since right after the election, um, but she's been very much in touch with the kind of opposition and the organization of the demonstrations, you know, they're, she, she and they are calling for a, a general strike uh, on the 25th and the largest March ever. So next Sunday could be um, D-Day, so to, so to speak, in Belarus. Well, we'll certainly be keeping an eye on what happens next Sunday. Um, now, I wanted to ask you uh, about a country that you so far have not mentioned. It's the eastern neighbor of the country you're in, Kyrgyzstan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is China. And, you know, China is directly, you know, adjacent to Kyrgyzstan, but it's also extended its influence and operations, uh, you know, really well into Europe and elsewhere in the world, in Africa and Latin America. And I wonder how you see, you know, China and whether it plays a role in any of these developments, how you see the relationship between China and these former Soviet states. <laughs> how much time do we have, John? <laughs> it's a great question, which I've done a lot of work on, uh, actually, particularly looking at the Belt, the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but uh, 
in some, what's happened over the last 15 to 20 years in Central Asia, um, with all the Central Asian countries, is that China has become uh, by far their most important economic partner from the standpoint of trade as well as investment. So this actually predates the beginning of the what came to be known as the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which was first announced in actually Astana in Kazakhstan in uh, 20, 2013. Um, as that time, the Silk Road Economic Belt. Um, too much information, perhaps. Uh, Kyrgyzstan owes China about uh, $5 billion, which is an awful lot of money for Kyrgyzstan, which has a GDP of for the country of somewhere, I don't know, $10, 10 $11 billion, although there's a lot of informal economy. A lot of informal economy. Um, the but the Kyrgyz are very very wary of China. Um, the what is what is that? So, so China has a lot of economic um, economic power and influence, and of course, with economic power and influence, it brings political power and influence as well. And uh, often it then you know, often it gives a, a a great power like China or whoever, um, you know, they have stakes that they think they have to, may need to defend. And so it can also involve uh, not only political power, but also military power. Hasn't gone that far yet because there's sort of an informal um, agreement, division of labor between the Chinese and the Russians and that the, the Russians um, kind of, they're, they are the managers of political stability and military security for Central Asia. Um, Moscow has never looked upon the other uh, republics, former republics of the Soviet Union, as fully independent. Um, 1992, the term uh, came about, they, they're referred to as the Blizhny uh, Zarubiezh, the near abroad. So they're not quite... <laughs> That's a way of not of saying they're not they're not fully sovereign. Now, obviously, some are more sovereign than others. Um, Kyrgyzstan is not necessarily one of them, um, but the Chinese role in this has been very very quiet. Um, my view on this kind of division of labor and and uh, and how China sees it, I think. I think if China is confident that Russia is able to manage things politically and uh, and so there's no dis- both countries don't want to don't want to see what's happening right now in Kyrgyzstan um, and let alone in other countries like Kazakhstan that has a lot of uh, hydrocarbon wealth um, and so there, there are higher economic stakes. So if China kind of gets the feeling that Russia may not be up to the task, kind of looking forward, uh, then I think ultimately they're going to uh, increasingly play a, a larger security role in the region. But that's not there. Right now it's strictly economic. But, um, you know, some of this economic influence is is not exactly, uh, um, well, it's pretty murky to, to, to put it mildly. Um, you know, one of the, uh, the, the most, mm, I would say controversial political economic figure is the former, 
number two guy uh, who was sacked in 2017, I think, um, Raim Matarimov, um, for corruption. He was the number two guy in the customs service. And uh, uh, the story goes, and there were a, a lot of facts or a lot of um, reporting about this that came out in November of last year, leading to some uh, demonstrations and against corruption and against this particular person in Bishkek, uh, but that he had made in the neighborhood of $700 uh, million uh, by, with, by basically facilitating trade from China through Kyrgyzstan to Uzbekistan. Um, so I do, I do scratch my head and wonder what, what the Chinese are thinking about this and to what extent they are, they are playing a role. Uh, I don't, and what has been happening is something I don't think they want to see happen. Now, let me give you just a little more historical backdrop on this. Um, Okay. The Kyrgyz, they've been dealing with the Chinese and Chinese expansion into Central Asia for about 2,000 years, probably a bit more. And in fact, the, 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 in these 2,000 years, the, it was in the 8th century where the Chinese empire had reached its furthest expansion into Central Asia. And there was a big battle. It's called the Battle of Talas. Talas is not all that far away from Bishkek. It's Kyrgyz. And uh, uh, so think about that. 2,000 years of a, lot of, of a lot of conflict. The Russians basically emerged there in the middle of the 19th century. It's the Russian Empire and then later the Soviet Union. Um, uh, you know, they colonized Kyrgyzstan, basically. They modernized Kyrgyzstan. And in fact, without uh, some of the nationalities policy for the republics, including Kyrgyzstan, which had never been uh, a nation state before, was, you know, Kyrgyz actually means 40 tribes. Um, And so it's always been kind of a a confederation. This is a mountainous country, about 95% mountains. Um, So it, you know, being united is a, is a, is a new thing and uh, as a state. But if you look at um, uh, recent uh, surveys, uh, you know, who does, who, who do, what do Kyrgyz think about Russia? Well, it's about 97% positive. Putin, about the same. I mean, Putin's, I think, more popular here than he is in Russia. Um, but, and for the Chinese... Um, they are, uh, those numbers are about 25, 26% positive. And, uh, so a lot of this, I think is this historical background. And then you get to the United States and the United States has only been dealing with Kyrgyzstan really since 1991. So we've been, a, we've been a player for 29 years, the Russians for 170 and the Chinese for 2000. That's, and, uh, that is why the, the Kyrgyz, so they do have much stronger cultural, uh, linguistic, uh, historical ties uh, to Russia that are more favorable. So I'll stop. So it's, oh. 
Okay, it sounds as though Kyrgyzstan has been historically part of China's near abroad, in effect. Uh, but I, I sort of want to ask you to border expand line, a little bit. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to ex- ask you to expand a little bit on your thoughts on China's expansionism, if that's the right word. Uh, I'm, you know, no expert on China, but it does seem to me that its historical expansionism has always been essentially, you know, land-based, uh, and that they didn't really go outside of the landmass of Eurasia, uh, and yet now they're doing that in a way that I think is historically unprecedented. Uh, a term I, you know, used or rejected basically in a piece that I wrote last week. Uh, because I think, you know, tends to be the case that few things are really unprecedented in, in our lives. But um, in any case, in this case, it does seem to me that the term is appropriate. And I wonder how you, you know, see that. Is that something we should be worried about? I mean, there's been a dispute between the Europeans and the Americans over how to deal with this company Huawei and the you know development of 5G technology and whether or not we should be sharing you know information data with uh, with this company uh, I wonder how you see the Chinese uh, you know challenge uh, is it a threat is it a challenge you know what exactly is it I think it's a I think it's a challenge. <laughs> it's going to be a long. It's going to be a long term, a long term challenge. Um, and uh, for example, actually, if you look at how the Chinese uh, presented uh, the Belt and Road Initiative uh, a few years ago, and also the way Xi Jinping has presented himself, uh, you know, he is now also a leader for life, and he is in the the pantheon of, of Chinese communist leaders, along with uh, Mao and Deng Xiaoping, that level of significance, at least as he's positioning himself. He, from the get-go, I've always looked at him as a very, very ambitious person who wanted to have achieve a lot historically for, for China and also t- and, and consolidating uh, power uh, is essential for that. Um, <clears throat> so the... Uh, uh, the belt, the, um, so uh, 1949 was the founding of the People's Republic of China. And that is after about 100 years of humiliation by the Western powers going back to the Opium Wars in the 1840s. And uh, with, then with, the, with that revolution, that is the start of the beginning of the restoration of a Chinese empire, um, the Middle Kingdom. Um, and... Uh, I think that there's, it's deep in the, if you will, uh, Chinese sort of political, cultural DNA uh, that we are still are barbarians, <laughs> and, and they are, you know, their culture and going back four or five thousand years is superior, and the natural way of things will be for China to be a much more dominant player in the world. So. Uh, I think it is going to be a huge challenge for the uh, for the United States um, uh, and the rest and the and the rest of the world how this is going to play out. And you know, it's, we're not in a new Cold War yet, but it's moving more in that direction. It's much harder for that to do that with China because the economic relationship is so deep and developed. But uh, um, 
you know, it's been pretty clear that the Trump administration policy has been to call China out for, um, you know, intellectual property right violations and all kinds of things they've been doing to really not only cheat the United States, uh, but Europe and other countries. And initially the Europeans, you know, they don't like, they don't like Trump's style because it's just so noisy and forceful. But uh, I think they kind of share the, cons- the same concerns. Um, and yeah, this Huawei uh, dispute has become kind of a, uh, uh, a watershed, a watershed for that. Um, initially when they, they got the, uh, the Silk Road economic belt going, I, I know the scholar, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I was trained as a Sovietologist and, and a sy- Sinology is my hobby. I did my dissertation on Sino-Soviet relations and re- relations between great powers have always fascinated me. Um, and since the Soviet Union was our big bad enemy, that's why I eventually became a so- Soviet expert and now a Russian expert, if you will. Um, the, uh, the idea was, a, uh, was from a, uh, actually an Americanist, um, Wang Jisu, a pretty good friend. He wrote this article uh, called China Marches West. And the article was that, you know, uh, China should not be so active right in the United States face, uh, you know, in the South China Sea and Taiwan. And those are areas of definite conflict. But there are other areas where possibly there could be more cooperation. Um, and that could be to the West. And uh, there was definitely thoughts. I, I spent a lot of time, John, in, about 10 years ago working on Afghan policy. <laughs> I said, you know, Russia's gotten too hard, so let me pick something easier. Let me do Afghanistan. Um, but that was the way some Chinese elites were seeing it, that we could, because the Chinese were interested in the mineral wealth of Afghanistan, uh, and they and they, the idea of the Silk Road economic belt, in a nutshell, is sort of to build a superhighway to the Middle East and to access to Middle Eastern oil uh, that can be transported um, over the continent, uh, rather than over by water, which uh, could be uh, potentially uh, impeded by the U.S. Seventh Seventh Fleet, I think strategically that is where it started. Um, I think it is uh, it is expanded. Um, I, I just wrote uh, the last thing I've written. It was for a chapter for a book on Chinese foreign policy. Now, I'm not a sinologist, but I was asked to write the China or the, the the chapter on Chinese policy toward Russia and Europe. And when I looked at uh, you know. If you look at it from a military strategic standpoint, you can see what the Chinese are doing in buying up all of these ports, access to ports in the Indian Ocean, in the Middle East, and in Europe. And, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. the U.S. Navy has always, or at least for the, since World War II, its main, main task has been to ensure freedom of navigation, freedom of the seas. It looks like it looks like the Chinese counter to that possibly is getting uh, access and control to ports. Now, some of them they have specifically uh, uh, they have desires to uh, for military purposes, but a lot of them are commercial ports. But I mean, the, the thought struck me that hmm, that's kind of interesting, you know? Okay, okay, America, you can have you can control the seas, but you can't come to port. Uh, so I thought it was an interesting possible strategy for what, what they were doing in a, in a big sense, kind of looking at, you know, Eurasia as the supercontinent, like the famous uh, uh, 
uh, Halford Mackinder, the uh, British <clears throat> geographer of the early 20th century, uh, talked about it. Um, it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a big strategy, but I think it's an overreach as well. Um, you know, no, no country uh, is going to be able to be the sort of the master of Eurasia, if you will, and um, and there's nothing like uh, you know a country that is trying to do that uh, for neighbors to develop uh, antibodies uh, to to uh, to fight against it, and we're. So they're having a lot. They've had a lot of bumps in the road, so to speak, in the Silk Road, um, and uh, I think they'll they will learn a lot. Um, it's uh, and each country has a has has difficult choices to make, especially if you're small small countries and not very wealthy countries in Southeast Asia, you know, or in or in Central Asia. Um, you know, I remember. <laughs> Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, when he was still president of Kazakhstan, he came to uh, he came to Washington, I think, three years ago in 2017, after Trump had been elected, and Trump was trying to tell him, "Look, you've got to, you've got to, you know, you look what the Chinese are up to. They, the, uh, you know, they really want to, you know, they want to control your economy." Da 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 da. And and uh, and Nazarbayev said, "Well, you know, who else is going to pay for some of these things that we need to have done?" Well, the United States is is not going to. Uh, we talked about a, um, in the Obama administration, and this was kind of something that I was advising from the outside. I called it a modern Silk Road strategy with some others thinking about a trade and transport, uh, connectivity strategy for Afghanistan at the, at the hub. Um, and they called it the new Silk Road initiative. Okay. If you call it an initiative rather than a strategy, that means you're not really serious about it. And everybody in the, everybody in the region understood that the Americans were not that we're not that serious about it. And, um, you know, that we're short timers, uh, and you know, those here, those people here, they see that. And so then they're left with, okay, I look at our, we've got Russia we've got China. Oh yeah. We've got Iran nearby and Pakistan. Um, it's a, it's, it's a challenging neighborhood. Uh, then across the way, you've got Turkey that has lots of interests over in this, this neck of the woods. Uh, you know, when the, um, when I was advising, uh, Afghan policy, my position, and it was not a popular one, but I thought it was a strategically a good one was, uh, the United States should have an open-ended, uh, you know, military commitment to Afghanistan. Um, it doesn't mean we're going to have a hundred thousand troops there, but just maintaining some kind of presence there. And, and why not? You know, when I would, when Russian and Chinese interlocutors would talk to me about U.S. Afghan policy and also what I was advising them, I de- definitely one <laughs> Chinese guy, I know he's, he's, uh, in a, he's, I'm sure he's an intelligence officer, but often intelligence officers are very smart. You know, they can be interesting inter- interlocutors. He said, is the, is the administration actually taking what you're saying seriously? No, I'm, no, I'm afraid not. They're not. He said, oh, that's good. Because <laughs> the Chinese would say, there's no way that, why is the United States, you know, uh, spending all of this blood and treasure in Afghanistan? You know, it can't be, you know, just to fight terrorism and the Taliban. You know, they thought that we wanted a uh, strategic presence in their, in their rear. And uh, I think that's not a bad idea, actually, not just for, not just for China, 
But uh, you know, given where Afghanistan is, you have look at Pakistan, Iran, Russia is not too far away. You know, the biggest foreign security policy challenges the United States faces. So, and I thought, well, you know, we've had troops in, in Europe for now 75 years. We've had troops in Japan for 75 years. We've had troops in, in South Korea for almost for about 70. You know, why not just make more of an open-ended commitment? But that's something that the United States is not ready to buy into. We're, uh, we made some big strategic mistakes uh, and people want, uh, you know, they're not up for that. I understand it. Right. I mean, it's a fascinating tour of the, you know, the region uh, and indeed the whole Eurasian landmass. So thank you for that. Uh, But you've also raised now the question of the United States. And, you know, it's hard not to think a little bit at least about our upcoming election, which is almost just a little more than two weeks away. Um, And I guess I wonder, you know, how you see the consequences of the first and perhaps only term of the Trump administration. Um, you know, you compared uh, our success or otherwise with the coronavirus to that of Kyrgyzstan. Now, that's not the kind of comparison that Americans typically want to hear. Uh, but I wonder, you I know, more Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan's done better. <laughs> I see. So I wonder, you know, how you assess what has been a relative with withdrawal from the world scene and combined with antagonism towards our traditional allies and, you know, cozying up to various uh, you know, nefarious characters, some of whom you've mentioned uh, that has been sort of inexplicable, certainly from a traditional foreign uh, Russian uh, Republican foreign policy standpoint, none of this makes any sense. Uh, so I wonder what you would say uh, about that as we sort of come to, to closing out. Well, um, foreign and security policy, uh, there's, there's probably been more continuity uh, from the Obama administration than Democrats would want to, would want to, want to admit. Um, but, uh, but, his his total uh, um, <laughs> you know he is the most ignorant president we've ever had come to power in the since the nineteenth century knowledge and history of the world um, and uh, his how he despises multilateralism uh, and use of diplomatic tools. Uh, is deeply uh, disconcerting uh, to me. Um, the uh, so I have a I think he's done I think he's done tremendous damage to a lot of our relationships in some way. And then you know it's you know the, the whole I don't want to get into the into Russia because that would just take us too long. But you know he does seem to have this fascination with uh, with dictators. Um, Thinking that he that he can actually have the make the art of the deal with Kim Jong Un in North Korea, or and it, and it goes on goes on down the line, you know. Um, so I think there's just been a lot of damage to U.S. foreign and security policy, and another four years, uh, and also it's just so unpredictable. Um, I was actually never I've never been a big John Bolton fan, but I have to tell you, after reading his book and his time in the White House working for the Trump administration, I, uh, 
<laughs> I liked him a lot better. And but but the for and what he was trying to do, at least try to bring some order. Think of a strategy. There is no strategy. The United States has been operating basically without much of a strategy for for thirty years, in my view, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. We had a focal point, you know, testing Soviet power. Then we got just dizzy with success in the so-called unipolar moment. And we started making, in my view, colossal mistakes. Um, I think the biggest one being the Iraq war. But sort of the larger thing was thinking that, you know, we could do whatever we wanted, no matter what anybody else says, because, you know, we're the United States. And with this notion that we're the indispensable power, Madeleine Albright called it in 1999, which was at the time and also when the you know, the dot-com economy was exploding. I mean, that was sort of the peak of the, of the unipolar moment, if you, if you will. Um, we were dizzy on, on fumes, and so no one thought about strategy because strategy entails having to make trade-offs. You can't do everything all at once, and, um, and we haven't understood that. Uh, and clearly, Donald Trump is not a strategic thinker at all, um, and he doesn't have the, uh, the focus, the focus for it. But I haven't, I haven't seen a compelling, frankly, compelling strategy uh, from any of our administrations um, in this post Cold War era. And we are, you know, looking at um, the longer, long durée of history. Uh, this is, you know, when there is a changing balance of power happening, and it's very unpredictable. Um, and then we have. You know what? What's the impact of climate change? And now we have. You know, we're getting the evidence of. Oh, oh, yeah. Actually, you know, we've been talking about this pandemic problem. Well, now we've actually really got it. Uh, it's going to be. It's going to be hard for whoever is president of the United States to to manage things. But we need to have more uh, more discipline and more focus, more humility. Uh, and just an un- really an understanding that we, you know, we are not the this indispensable country, um, and that's kind of what the world's been finding out for the last three or four years. That okay, uh, and if you look at Nagorno-Karabakh, for example, no, we're not a significant player there. Uh, we're not going to be. The two external powers are Turkey and Russia. If you look at uh, Belarus, what we're talking about today. You know, we're we're not a we're not a significant a big player in any of any of these places, inclu- including the place I am. I think the biggest achievement, the biggest thing, the most important thing that the United States has done in this country and actually in Central Asia is uh, uh, contributing to the foundation and the sustainability of the university of which I'm president, investing in higher education, um, and and where people learn to think critically. That's our you know the. We are a liberal arts university, John, and we'll get back to our Amherst background, our roots. Um, and what is the essence of liberal arts? I didn't really understand it, actually, when I was a student at Amherst, but now I understand it better. It's learning how to think critically about things and, uh, and question your assumptions all the time, and then to be able to uh, express them you know, in written form, in oral form, in a cogent, in a cogent way. Now, the Soviet Union, okay, they weren't interested in in training people to think critically, you know, on the contrary. And a lot of places aren't interested in, tr- in training people to think critically. But this, but that is the critical thing behind innovation, and uh, uh, which is the key to economic development. And that's why, that's why a lot of kids, uh, they want to come 
to the American University of Central Asia. Uh, uh, we are the best university in the country. To me, that's a great achievement of American foreign of American of United States foreign policy that uh, that this that this university exists. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit uh, too much on my own hobby horse, but it is something I actually strongly believe in. Um, so less wars, invest more in education, um, exchange programs, things like that, and we'll do better. You know, the first thing is always do no harm. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. I, I think Indeed. I'm, I mean, I've never had a big, such a big management job like this. But in, every day when things come my way, the first thought has got to be, Andy, okay, do no harm. Uh, it's like, you know, like you're playing, playing golf. You hit, you, hit the, you hit the ball in a place you don't want to be. Well, the first thing you don't, you don't want to do is compound the error. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think there's an old, uh, I believe it's an Irish proverb that says, we grow too soon old and too late smart. Yeah. But but it sounds like you've gotten smart and uh, that you're in a really important and valuable role there. And I really want to thank you for sharing your insights about the part of the world that you've been studying since we were in college, indeed. Um, but that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Dr. Andrew Cutchins, president of the American University of Central Asia in Bishkek. Uh, Kyrgyzstan for sharing his insights. Um, I also want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.